This is Stories of the Land Connect, and I'm your host, Rebecca Dallinger. We will hear from diverse people and communities of the northern and northwest Minnesota's rural landscape. This is where the prairie meets the pines, the headwaters of the Mississippi flows, where the hardwoods and the tamarack trees meet. This is a place of many rivers, lakes, and watersheds. This is home. Mike Swan has extensive experience as director for land management for the White Earth Nation. His interconnected teachings bring forward his years of understanding between spirit and perspectives. Ah, but you, Mike Swan, second she did come. What's the looking I'm not mongy with them. Hello, my name is Mike Swan. That's my English name. My Ojibwe name is Wasamukwa Amin Shining Bear. I belong to the Loon Clan, and I live in a village of Manshakakago, which is Pine Point, uh, on the Wires Reservation. I was director of natural resources for White Earth Reservation for over 20 years. Went to college for uh, science, biology, geology. Eventually uh, came back here, worked for the tribe. I also uh, started off as a water quality biologist for the Minnesota Chippewa tribe. Came home here to to help out and work in uh, natural resources here on the Waters Reservation. We looked over a lot of things here fisheries and wildlife, wild rice, conservation and law enforcement, but also environmental protection, water quality, pesticide use, land use, environment, forestry and logging practices. Boy, we did a lot of things. That of 45 people. I guess it all started well, just growing up here in the village here in, the, in Pine Point. I always had interest in the environment. I liked being in the woods. I liked uh, I like fishing and everything like that, but the thing is, when I went into college and I was looking at different fields to go to, it was more of an interest because it's something I enjoyed to understand why the interaction, like what they call limnology, the interaction between land and water, understanding the things on plants, understanding things on animals. That's what science is and learning science got my interest when I was uh, when I went to college. I pretty much did my whole career in that, 35 years of working with six Minnesota Chippewa tribes, but also I had a, I did a short time working with the state on the Minnesota Police Control Agency as a environmental specialist. I also worked as a BIA, but that didn't last very long because it's hard working for the government. <laughs> you hired me as an environmental specialist and made people to try to help work on the improving the resources. Their main thing was protecting the federal government from the Indians. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I, so that's not a reason why I wanted to come and work for you guys. I wanted to make a difference in developing uh, integrated resource management plans. Some of the tribes in uh, Michigan, I did that in the 1842 treaty area, looking at resources over there, developing plans. Uh, all it was a short time. I, it was still where I was working this field. Also worked a little bit up in the up in Canada. Some of the tribes up there and developing. They were looking at going after their treaty rights up there mm-hmm. and to manage their treaty rights, but also to understand that they 
needed to manage the people, but also manage the resources themselves. This is it's been a field that I've been I really enjoyed working on it, the variety of the stuff that I did. Even for just for whiters, it was just not uh, like fisheries or forestry or wildlife like that. It was all the things that I looked at, seeing science in my background, but also keeping in mind my native spirituality, Ojibwe person, understanding that. And a lot of times you have to balance between science and your culture and learning it. That, I guess sometimes uh, that was hardest, understanding that you need to protect your cultural resources out there, manage what is you know, good for the people. Very safe harvest, for, not only for fish, but for um, deer or even rice. Or You had to look at all that stuff and approach it. Some people think, of, well, for example, wild rice season, you think they want to go out there and nowadays you want to go out there and uh, roll the rice and then buck. To be able to uh, make the optimal, make sure that the rice is ripe so that they have a good harvest. Sometimes I was the uh, worst person on the reservation because I held them back. But when they went from rice and they started hitting around 500 pounds of rice, well, I was the best person on the reservation. <laughs> <laughs> to try to make people understand that. You just don't open it all up just because uh, it might be sometimes they think it's ready to harvest. No, it's not. Sometimes you got to take a look at what is the optimal, how much fish is in a, is in a lake that be able to sustain a population of fish young for deer. How much deer are per mile, the population there? A long time ago, they used to go out and people used to go out there and uh, count deer droppings. Nowadays, it's all mathematical. Sometimes we kind of question this. If you had a harsh winter, harsh, harsh winter kill on deer, how do you factor in that mathematical problem? Well, nowadays, they got foreigners in doing that to look how severe the winter is. Even lakes for winter kill, they get down on oxygen level, gets down to around two, and all the game fish starts dying out. People want to go out there and start harvesting it. Well, you got to make sure that it gets down there, it's going to happen. Don't open it up, saying, well, go ahead and go out and har- harvest all the fish you want to. It all varies. They got to realize it all varies all the time. It's something that's not constant. When you look at science, measuring the population growth, there's a lot of different factors that you got to keep in mind. Some of the things that we did, a lot of people don't like to see trees cut down. Back in the 80s, they were doing some large clear cuts. So it's taking all the trees in the whole area in a given section of land, not leaving nothing. It looks barren. It looks terrible. And there was some spots here on the reservation that was, that was done like that. So we got on there on the county about that got them to do a more of a select cut. They want to take aspen, if the aspens are getting older, like at 70 years old, and aspen, then it's starting, they start to rot inside. The value of the wood is not as good as, let's say, a 50-year-old tree. To leave also cover for the animals and the birds so they could still survive in that area. When you do a clear cut, you take away the cover for all the animals. They move out to a different area. When you do a slick cut, you also, at least you give cover in that. The logging push the tops of trees and everything like that into wetlands. Well, wetlands basically also recharges the groundwater. Putting in that, pushing in, trying to fill in wetlands is going to affect your groundwater. 
throwing in waste or whatever like that into wetlands. But that gets into the groundwater system. Even looking at development, protecting those areas and land use. They fill these areas up to for development. They don't realize that, yeah, it's going to affect their ground, their drinking water. Look at that stuff. The job was kind of a, you try to adjust everything, not just one area. They all interact one thing and another. That's how, when I was looking at science, when I was looking at we call luminology, you know, actually between land and water, especially in a lake. Uh, usually around 50% of the lake is within 15 feet deep or something like that. That's where the majority of the fish and all the vertebrates and benthic organisms and everything that the food chain in the lake itself is affected. It's within that 15 feet depth of a lake. We started seeing people where they were trying to their ideal is a nice sandy beach, yeah, but uh, you just don't go out and start changing a lake, the lake ecosystem because you want a beach. You got to look what's all in there first. You just go throughout all the plants or anything like that. You might be taking up wild rice, you know, bulrushes or anything like that. All the other plants that, that survive in a, in a shallow area of the lake, you know, they grow there for a reason. When you look at that, you look at what plants are, are there, are they more natural plants? The biggest thing that they look at nowadays was invasive species, something that's not from this area. Eurasian mealfowl, some that look similar like it, that's natural, but here, it grows so fast that it chokes out the other plants. We don't see a lot of it on the reservation. The other thing that they're looking at nowadays is uh, zebra mussels, and I guess they have shown up. Now, on a couple of different ways on the reservation, they don't know how to get rid of it now. Is there a natural predator out We don't know. Mm-hmm. You think about all these things that interact together, not only on the lakes, but also on the land itself, and how they look at and how to manage them. Man is just one part of it, but they also have an impact on types of species and what they're harvesting. And they got to realize that there's a way to manage it and there's a way to protect it. People want to just use it and not protect it. As far as my cultural side, you look at showing respect. Respect to the animals, respect to the trees, respect to the plants, all the things that's out there. It's difficult sometimes, like I said, balancing the science, balancing the spirit of it. To fully understand both of it, first look at one area and that's it. Then just open your eyes and look at it. What can be, what is used. A lot of those plants have dissolved things that we use for Jewish people. So when you talk about that connection and that looking at the whole picture of things, Mike, uh, that it's not just, it's not just science. It's not just protection. It's you have to look at all of it. Is there like a, a memory that you have when you were a little, a little person growing up to do this work? I kind of looked at my father and my uncles. Most of the time, my father was a logger, you know, in the woods all the time, harvesting. There's a few times that I remember growing up, he worked in the mines over by uh, Hibby. And my uncle went out to Butte, Montana, and there was uh, digging, working in the copper mines out there. And I remember how he's looking at these mines, uh, these large open pits. Their land was just, everything was just scraped away. It was just a big hole, something that's never going to be fixed again. I remember that growing up a kid. Being home, around, uh, around home here in 
on a white reservation, you know, we don't have that because, boy, if there was gold in those hills, we would have been relocated a long time ago. <laughs> you go in the woods nowadays, you enjoy being out there, looking around and seeing all these things, you know, it's, especially the springtime here. With, you know, it's being that life, everything coming back to life again after a long winter. Trees will be budding, starting to bud out and everything like that. Those things are kind of impacted me. Just to look at it, to me, I want to understand it. What's out there? We have a sucker creek they use for uh creators to go out, identify invertebrates. And I looked at that and I said, God, I know all these things, you know. First five years after college, I did was identifying invertebrates, invented organisms, and zooplankton, and all these things here, organisms, what survives in a lake. With a little magnifying glass, talking with these students, the snatchers, what kind of mayfly, what kind of caddisfly, what kind of blood major, whatever like that, that these were. Then they're all looking at me, well, how'd you know that? I said, well, first five winters after college, I looked in their microscope, got to a point where I was starting to name them. <laughs> Nicknames, anyway, I said. But helping out the science program with the school and all that, students will come with me and they'll, with the insect, and I look at it, oh, that's a swan so like that. And they all kind of, how do you know all this stuff? They thought I'm just because I'm Indian, they all didn't think I was yeah. <laughs> I was kind of looking forward to it this year again. But it was something that it kind of clicked on me. Because that five winter, long winters, looking in the microscope. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about? Connecting with nature and working with those kids at Sucker Creek or other things you've done, working with families. and Do you think there's healing in there? Like, how do you see you know some what, of those uh, pieces? I thought I started something else too with that. When you look at the different invertebrates like that, certain ones only thrive when the water's clean. They don't exist when in polluted water. So you kind of tell that to the students that, okay, this is a clean system because these particular invertebrates are here. If they were, the water was polluted or something like that, they would not be here. This would also affect the food chain. So just trying to explain that to the students, that was something else too, and, you know, just teaching that part of it. How, how clean is the water that we look at, uh, the lakes? When I first looked at it, when I started looking at all these invertebrates like that, and I said to myself, oh my God, I go swimming. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sticking to the screen pool, I guess. Real healthy water. <laughs> Do you see when kids are in those worlds with you? Is there something that you see that makes change? I was surprised how quick some of them really picked it up. They remember that. They remember that stuff, which is good. What is out there in that in the world out there? Things you're not going to see in the naked eye. There's more to it out there than just looking at a, a, a stream or a creek or something like that. There's more in there. You think it's dead now just because it's water? No, it's not. It's things that survive in there. Even if you look at the pollution of it, uh, different lakes and that uh, impacts of it, those things, they start understanding. Matter of fact, I looked at, I did a year teaching up at the tribal college. I was explaining that to some of the students there that really got to a lot of students, a couple of students that really wanted to pursue the science field, getting going and continuing education 
And there's not too many um, natives in the science field. The door is wide open if they go into this field. That was the first one when I went to college at the University of Minnesota Duluth. I decided to go through, I was chosen to American Indians and Marine Sciences. And it was called AIM, American Indians and Marine Sciences. Actually, I was the first one to graduate. And the program actually was, they paid for my junior and senior year in college, just doing research and helping out graduate students on their research. There was a lot of places I could have went to instead of just coming home to White Earth or to Minnesota Chippewa Tribe or anything like that. To me, my interest was coming home. There was a lady there that was ahead of this program, and her name was Ruth Myers. Uh, she passed on now. We kind of jokingly called her the, the grandmother in the education. She really pushed me to, to go into this field. She said, the only thing I want to see you do is go back and help your, help your people. She said, don't have to worry about anything other than your grades and get done and finish this program. And so I did. You know, I thanked her for it. There was a few times, science classes that I knew I was having difficulty with. I got to understand it and to send college and to finish. When I graduated, tribes were just now in Minnesota, were just starting to get their, their treaty rights. The biggest thing that they were saying there was you got to manage your people. To manage your people is you got to have conservation officers in developing laws and that. When I came out of college, I started helping developing those things, conservation codes um, to regulate. So I was doing that when I was when I just got out of college, Minnesota Chippewa Tribe, and there was no other natives in these fields at all. So when I did it, the chairman for Wider's, I interviewed for a job, biologist for came over to me and uh, the chairman and my family, we really didn't get along together. And he was scared of that. He said, he said, I've been watching you, he said, the last five years here, we'd like to get you back in White Earth. And I told the chairman, I said, well, I know that my family and you, you know, butt heads a lot in the past, but you're hiring me as a person to come over and do some work. You're hiring me as a biologist and to help manage the resources here. And after our conversation, he says, well, pack up, he says, and you're coming home, he says, you come home to work. I started working here, and that's when I first looked at it as we didn't have a plan as far as how are we going to manage, how are we going to look at our resources and that. That's the first thing I started working on is integrated resource management plans for a 10-year period and to be revised every five years. And they still use it. <laughs> One of the things I looked at a couple of years ago, I was doing a travel college, and I really enjoyed it in talking with the students, getting them out there in the field, and taking a look and understanding the forest, understanding the prairie, understanding the lakes, the different surroundings, different types of surroundings on there, the conifer forest versus the Sisyphus forest versus the prairie versus shrubs and lowlands or anything like that. You know, they're all different. Once you understand it, you can understand where the animals are at. <laughs> okay, you want to go fishing? I'll kick it. Here they are over here. Okay. Those are the things I kind of looked at when, uh, in the field. It was a great career. Is there a philosophical message or something that you would share with a student or share with another person 
when you look at something, just don't look at the object. Look at the things around it. You know, what makes you tick? <laughs> it's a lot more than meets the eye. A lot of people don't understand that part. In our culture, not only like, for example, maple, maple sap, understanding that. Unfortunately, you can go to the school over here and say, well, don't point me out a maple tree. And there's no leaves on it. How do you go to determine it? And a lot of students don't know what a maple tree is, understanding the different types of trees, knowing the differences. Uh, anything else you want to add? Or? Oh, there's, <laughs> a, there's a lot of things that, uh, that people can look at here. The main thing is uh, understanding the forest or understanding the lakes and understanding resources. And I say that uh, you know, people have different philosophy towards resources who don't understand that part of it. And they just want to use it to, they think the resources is there for the taking. Well, it's for everybody. And it's, there is a limited resource. If you, once you take it and it's gone, it's, it's no longer there. So they got to, you know, ever since this um, pandemic that's going on here right now, um, I've been kind of watching the part where air quality has went down quite a bit. Air pollution has went down quite a bit. People have not driving around or with carbon dioxide or anything like that. Uh, those things, they don't realize that, well, it's gonna take a long time for Earth to heal. You know, the thing is, it's not gonna heal overnight. Just because we start, we're not driving our cars and we still got a long ways to go. We need to take care of Mother Earth, not to, uh, the only planet we got. <laughs> yeah, rich. Many thanks to everyone who's been part of telling their stories of the Land Connect. Thank you for the generosity of your time and the beauty of your words. Again, I am your host, Rebecca Dallinger. Special thanks to mentors and podcasters, Shirley Nordrum and Zach Page. The theme song is by Zach Page. You can find Zach's podcast seed stories on his North Circle Seed Company page. This series couldn't have been done without the generous support of the University of Minnesota's Wiseman Art Museum and the Itasca Biological Field Station, as well as the generous support of Extension's Regional Sustainable Development Partnerships, also known as RSDP. To find out more about sustainability projects in your county, go to extension.umn.edu slash regional partnerships. Thank you.